So Sarah was a college graduate, 22, just moved to San Francisco, broke. And while waiting for the bus on Geary Street, she called a friend. But, um, actually, I can't tell you what the friend said without first warning you that the content of the friend's advice might not be suitable for younger listeners. In fact, the content of most of today's program, it's This American Life, by the way, I'm Ira Glass, may not be suitable for younger listeners. Today's program is stories of three women and the sex industry. So, Sarah's on the street, needs a job, calls her friend from college. Her friend says, come do phone sex with me. And so I went to her house that night and we got drunk and took phone sex calls and I did it for the first time and I was really good at it. And we made like 80 bucks. And what was it like the first night? What instructions did she give you? <laughs> she um, gave me a list of dirty words. It was like, it wasn't even a list. It was like just this collage um, Typed or handwritten? Handwritten. Mm-hmm. And uh, just every single word for that's associated with sex, either either profanity or, you know, just words like wet and hot and steamy. <laughs> and she said that if you got lost, you could really just string them together. <laughs> and um, she was really, really, really funny. The guys on the phone seem like the normal range of guys you meet, Sarah says. Some unlikable, maybe 20% she felt like she could have been friends with, another 10% that she really liked. She would do calls where she was supposed to dominate the man, and calls where she was supposed to be black or Asian. You know, you could just sort of do this accent. It was incredibly un-PC, but um, you could just sort of do this accent which approximated like a guy in Nebraska's idea of what it is that an Asian woman talks like, and they would believe you. Okay, and so, that for sort example, of went... so for example, if you were to say something to me in this accent, for example, describe oh. where you're sitting right now as this Asian woman. Uh, you know, I, I really... Your dignity will preclude you from doing that. Yes, it will. It really will. I don't have that much dignity, but I can't do that. <laughs> well, I, I will respect that. I uh, also had a British accent, which was really, really awful, which I... Which I modeled after um, um, the uh, the woman on L.A. Law. Come on, let's hear that. No, I'm not going to do it for you. How is that? That wasn't very good. The guy, <laughs> in the, the guy in the control room is sort of shaking his head at me. I want you to take unzip your pants for me, please, darling. All right, you can stop right there. It's public broadcasting. She did phone sex for a year, then got a job as a naked dancer. She did this for two years. She said that she heard her back dancing for hours in high heels. She hated her bosses. Every now and then a customer would say something mean to her. But she really, really liked the women she worked with. And on a Saturday night, she would have a better time dancing naked at her job to loud music than, say, going to a party with her friends. Because everyone kept trying to tell me, oh, you know, you really hate this job and you just don't know that you hate it. But I couldn't feel that I hated it. I called my sort of, like, closest friend and said, do you think it's stupid that I'm doing this? Like, I don't feel like I don't like this job. I feel like I like it. Like, I get up in the morning and I go to it and I don't mind. And he was like, well, you know, if you don't, if you feel like you like it, then you probably do. That was sort of a ramble, but I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is there were really, really crappy things about it, but it was so far from the worst job that I've ever had. Really? What was the worst job than this? I'm just going to stop the tape right here. I'm just going to stop the tape and come in live to give you a moment to consider what that worst job might be before she gives her answer. Okay, are we all thinking now? All right, here we go. Um, 
Being a grant writer for the Central Park Conservancy. Being a grant writer. <laughs> a job I myself have done. She said she didn't like working in an office. She didn't like taking orders. Being naked in front of strangers was preferable to taking orders. She says if you want to understand what this job is like, she says it's really, for her anyway, not that different than other service industry jobs that she's had. I, I think it was like day to day, just like any, just pretty much like any job that's not a great job. You know, it's like waitressing. I mean, you know, there's some days where you're waitressing and you're going, oh, this is pretty cool. I'm making pretty good money. You know, I'm working out in the patio today. It's nice out. And there's some days where you're like, if I have to ask one more person what they want in their hamburger, like, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot myself. Well, that was Sarah's experience. Other women have a different experience in the sex industry. Today on our program, Act One, someone whose life comes apart working in the go-go clubs. Act Two, a guy who prefers pornography to having sex with his girlfriend, changes. Stay with us. Act One, Susan. Last summer, reporter and radio producer Sandy Tolan was going to do a story about the sex industry from the workers' perspective with a woman named Susan Walsh. Walsh was an aspiring writer who worked in go-go bars in New Jersey to support her son. And then, a week or so before they were going to start work on their documentary, Susan Walsh disappeared. On July 16th, she left her home in Nutley, New Jersey, to make a call at a payphone on the corner. She didn't have a phone at home. She left her wallet, her keys, and her beeper behind. She told her son that she would be right back. And she never came back. Everybody close to her assumes that she's dead. So Sandy Tolan decided to set out on a different story to try to understand what her life was like in the go-go bars of Jersey and to understand what might have led to her life coming apart. Again, a warning to parents. This is another story about the sex industry. Large sections of it may not be suitable for younger listeners. My first stop is at the Village Voice, where my old friend James Ridgway works as a political correspondent. Jim had suggested Susan Walsh and I work together. She was the researcher for his new book, Red Light, Inside the Sex Industry, which tells the story from the point of view of the workers, strippers, streetwalkers, call girls, and porn actors. I first met Susan Walsh in the offices of Screw Magazine when I was working on a book about the sex industry, and I went to see um, Al Goldstein, who was the editor. And as I was talking to him, I was complaining about how I couldn't get anywhere in this whole business and, and asked him if he could give me some advice. And he said, well, you know, there's this woman that comes in here every so often, and she writes for us, and, and she'd be really good because she really knows this stuff. And at that point, for some reason, you know, this woman suddenly appeared, and she had this kind of like long blonde hair, was kind of flying in the wind, and she had this motorcycle jacket, and she's real skinny and awkward looking. She hardly looked like somebody you'd think was a striptease uh, dancer or go-go dancer. She looked like kind of a, a college kid. Only as I later learned, you know, that Susan was in her 30s. A single mother trying to break into journalism, paying the bills by dancing Jersey go-go. Susan started working with Jim two, three days a week. And she was very smart. She certainly knew the sex business like uh, nobody I ever met when I was doing this book, and I certainly met quite a few people. She knew all aspects of it, and what she didn't know, she'd find out. She was like a, a really good reporter, um, and she was a terrifically good mother. The big thing in her life was her kid, her uh, son David, who at that time was, you know, 10, 11. 
you know, he would come to my office and he'd work on the computer or he'd work his homework while she did, did her work on the telephone or we talked. And she was just totally uh, devoted to this boy. Susan longed to be a full-time writer. Jim got her to write a few pieces on Gogo for The Voice. He set her up with a couple of film and radio gigs. But dancing paid the bills. She'd work six days a week sometimes, two shifts a day, just barely making it. And she was always toting this bag around with her, with her G-string and her, and her heels. And she would just, you know, if she didn't have the money to get on the PATH train to go home, she would just check into one of these clubs and dance a set and see if she'd come out with ten bucks. Now, it's not exactly the high life here. At dusk, I head through the Lincoln Tunnel to the Jersey Turnpike, past the big white oil storage tanks and the rusted globes of natural gas. I'm riding with Jill Morley, a writer and actress, who worked in Jersey Go-Go until a couple of years ago when she got sick of it and left. Jill was a friend of Susan's. It's terribly sad. Um... I go in and out of, of being emotional about it because sometimes it just seems like it's too absurd to be true that it's happened. It's just, it just feels such a loss. Jersey is the land of Gogo, 350 clubs by one estimate, the most of any state. We pull off the turnpike and head into the small town of Belleville, just outside Newark. We're trying to find an old haunt of Susan's. And there it is, right on the well-lit main drag. Wiggle, says the pink sign, and below that, a banner. Breakfast special, legs and eggs, Friday, 7 a.m. to noon. This seems more like a place Susan would uh, work. It's more like divey and, uh, I don't know, like more regular-looking women working, you know, very Jersey-looking. On the narrow linoleum bar at Wiggle's, a woman walks the gauntlet between the hands of men and the bottles of whiskey, gyrating in a spandex bikini. She pivots toward the men, pauses, presses her breasts together. The customer lodges a folded-up dollar bill at her cleavage. At the bar, we ask around, but nobody seems to remember much about Susan Walsh. Let me ask you something. We're friends with Susan Walsh. What? Susan Walsh. But then the answer tells us, oh yeah, she remembers Susan. She takes Jill backstage to the dressing room where it's quieter. Oh, yeah, I met her. She was very nice. She was really, really nice, but I thought she was like a little bit dixie. And when I found out when she was missing, and I found out, in, I read the article in the New York Times, or, no, the New York Post, and it said that she was working on a, a documentary and all this stuff. I was thinking, she didn't seem, it's terrible, but she didn't seem that smart to me. Not that she wasn't smart, but she seemed a little ditzy, and she didn't seem that mature. And I found she was 36, and um, I was surprised. I thought she looked really nice, because she was, um, like, when I first seen her, I thought she was very striking, because she was so pale-skinned, and her hair was so white without looking phony. You know, most girls with white hair, it just looks, you know, it's bleached, it looks phony. It looked very natural on her, whether it was real or not, I don't know. And I haven't, I haven't heard anything. Somebody told me that her family is pretty much uh, being said she, she must be dead because she hasn't popped up yet and um, she would never leave her son. And they were saying maybe they should put it on Unsolved Mysteries. Maybe we'd find her then. They are, they're doing it. Are they going yeah. to? When is it going to be on? Uh, February 14th, I think it's supposed to air. Wow, that would be great. Maybe something will come of it. Yeah. So it goes throughout the evening. 
Jill and I walk into a go-go bar. Jill goes backstage. A dancer speculates on what might have happened to Susan. Maybe it was the Russian mob. Maybe it was the regular mob. Maybe it was a deranged go-go patron. Maybe somebody was mad at something. She said in the book Red Light. It could have been anything. It could have been anything. You think she could have been bumped off, maybe? Um, no, no. But usually there have been quite a few dancers that have been found in different areas. Really? And of course. Yeah, you hear about it in the entertainment magazine or in the newspaper. You know, it, it's never played up, but you know, because everybody thinks, you know, go go dancer. Oh, she right. must be a slut or whatever. But you know, there's still people too, and whatever they do, they do. But nobody deserves to be killed. <laughs> right. Here at the Marleybone, a dancer speaks in sharp, low tones, warning us not to ask too many questions about what happened to Susan. Here at Club After Dark, dozens of Russian women, part of the new wave of immigrant labor, grind themselves into the laps of the men at the bar. Here at Club 516, smoke and spandex and dead eyes, a woman mechanically pulling her skirt up and down as she stares at herself in a mirror. I'm reminded of a photograph of Susan in the book Red Light. She's on a carpeted stage. Guys with beards are perched on bar stools, enjoying a laugh. And Susan, in a bikini, blonde hair falling over her shoulders, swivels her backside toward the men. She's poised before the mirror, dazed, alone in another world. Susan used to say that when she first got into go-go, it seemed like such a good idea. Here she is telling her story on a radio talk show two weeks before she disappeared. I had been working for six years as a writer for engineering and business publications after college and raising a, a son pretty much on my own. I was separated and um, I'd lost my job because of the recession. And I said, wow, how can I raise my son, go to graduate school and take my writing out of the trade sector into the public sector and um, still do it all and not, you know, not just have time to make dinner and go to sleep every night. And I thought it was an easy way out because I had a friend who was making thousands a week. She said to me, why don't you dance a couple nights a week and then you can do whatever you want. Raise your kid, go to school. I said, great. At first I felt totally in control, lots of attention. Men love me, I'm getting attention. I'm the little princess on stage. It's insidious and after a while I realized that it was exhausting. There were many hidden costs and um, I stayed in it for far too many years and I'm not happy with the fact that I am still dancing. Yes, I did complete half of my master's, and I have been doing a lot of writing. But boy, what a high price I had to pay. At lunchtime on the last day of July, I drive out to see Susan's mom, Martha Young, in Wayne, New Jersey. Susan's son, David, is visiting that day. Susan's been missing for two weeks now. We eat lunch and make small talk. Then they invite me to join them at a video arcade at the mall. Well, what do you want to do, men? Martha watches David run off, dashing between video games. She's glad he's got something else to do besides think about his mother. She says he's blocking his feelings, not wanting to confront the possibilities. And I hope Susie is still alive, but it's the not knowing that is so horrible. But um, it's also what would be worse is knowing that she isn't with us anymore. And I, I... I'm just crazy inside. I feel as though I'm broken apart. This is all so unlike Susan, her mom says. She would never leave David like this. Then Martha pauses a moment. She has something she wants to say. 
She stares at my microphone. Hi, Susie. This is Mom. I, if you're listening or if you hear about this, I want to give a message to you. I love you very, very much, more than anybody in the world, and I, I, I just want to see you again. And please take good care of yourself wherever you are and know that you're loved and missed so much by everybody. I love you. Late October, three and a half months now since Susan disappeared. Jill Morley and I are in midtown Manhattan. We're paying a visit on Susan's therapist, Mary Nolan, who works a lot with go-go girls and prostitutes. We're trying to make sense of something. By all accounts, Susan had a lot going for her outside of go-go, and she wasn't making much money dancing, yet she kept doing it. Susan could not cut the ties with that world because it was a powerful pull for her. So she something was happening. I guess the term would be uh, repetition compulsion. It's acting out some type of an early event to get it right in the future. And she worked the whole gamut of the adult sex industry. I don't think she missed a wrinkle because she had a need to know and do this. And then she had a need to write about it and tell people about it. And now a strip tease from the beautiful Susan Walsh for you out there in Midnight Blue Land. Hi, I'm Susan Walsh and I'm a dancer. This is what I do for you when I dance in gentlemen's clubs. I move as if I were your lover, some fantastic embodiment of veloxed beauty, breathless, hungry, siren. Susan wrote this essay for Al Goldstein's Midnight Blue Porn Cable Show. And defending the notion of free speech, they put it on. Now, I exist for you. You say you will, you must tease my sexual nerves. You laugh when I struggle to protect my nipples from your raggedy fingers as if I'm trying to believe the absurd notion that I'm real. She smiles, takes off her top, calls the bar patrons pathetic droplets of insect mucus. We count the dollar bills you stuff into our costumes or fold into nauseatingly cute shapes like frogs or flowers. We unravel it all at the end of the night, our legs coated with dust and bruises, and memories of your existence rush from our minds. If we thought about you too long, we'd go crazy. So we stuff your bills in our pockets, just like we stuff the idea that maybe we all lost out. Maybe paying the rent just isn't worth Christmas time now. I'm back in New York. It's more than five months since anyone's heard a word from Susan. Susan's father, Floyd Merchant, drives in from New Jersey to see me. He looks like he's been crying. He says he often talked to Susan about quitting go-go. The go-go bars were the worst place for somebody with her head on straight. Hers wasn't on straight. First of all, she's a recovering alcoholic and drug addict and is sitting on the railroad tracks, jumping off every time the train passes and then jumping back right back on. I thought she might have cardiac arrest, I was almost sure she was going to go back to drinking and using. Susan's health was failing. She had emphysema, an ulcer, and chronic bronchitis. And then she did start drinking and using drugs again, mixing them with the anti-anxiety drug Xanax. It was a potent cocktail, and Susan started getting more and more disconnected from reality. She, she was already living in, in a fantasy world and a paranoid fantasy world, not a happy fantasy world. 
she was running to people saying, uh, there's a contract out on me, but don't tell anybody. Then she'd run to somebody else and say, there's a contract out on me, but don't tell anybody. And this, this is, is a preliminary to a real breakdown. She was addicted to the fantasy part of her life. A lot of the people that she, she associated with from the bars and stuff like that, they played the fantasy of FBI and CIA. And Now we're back in Jersey, kind of, Newark, on a windy, bitter December day. Jill and I are visiting Melissa Hines, Susan's best friend. She had a friend that claimed that he was in, he belonged to the CIA. He, he was playing the role that she wanted to hear. Oh, I'm CIA. I'm going to Washington for the weekend. Um, oh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm working undercover um, against the mafia, you know. So it was like this big, you know, role-playing stuff that I think she, she lived for that, that fantasy and, um, and the danger that she thought she was in. You know, um, it was crazy. <laughs> And what did the guy turn out to be? Um, he turned out to be, <laughs> um, uh, worked for a trucking company. <laughs> 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 but a lot of, um, the fantasy world that she lived in, I think it had a lot to do with the fact that, um, she was once diagnosed with bipolar disorder, manic depressiveness, and she wasn't taking her medication. So, you know, she needed a lot of help. Dozens of presents are piled up under Melissa's Christmas tree, most for her nine-month-old boy. Melissa's having a hard time talking to us. She and Susan used to celebrate Christmas together, and Susan was there when the baby was born. Melissa gets up, turns on a light, retrieves a well-worn folder. Like everyone in Susan's life, Melissa's been trying to figure out what happened. This is stuff that I wrote down. What is it? It's different people that seen her. I wrote down um, who was calling her, who she was associating with. She was around a lot of different people. I mean, Friday, July 12th, Susan went to Town Tap in Irvington and was sick. Um, I was at her house, and I talked to her, and I left. That was the last time I seen her, was July 12th. July 13th, um, Susan worked at the show place from 5.30 at night to 1.45 a.m. On July 16th, Susan left her house around noon. By 3.30, Melissa had a strange feeling. She hurried over to Susan's. I rang the bell, and the, it looked like there was nobody there, and nobody answered, and I got a very... Um, a very bad feeling, like just emptiness inside. At first, everyone had a hunch. Susan had been murdered by a stalker. Susan had been kidnapped and sold to a motorcycle gang. Susan had been abducted by the Russian mob for sniffing around the story she and I were going to do. Susan was a streetwalker in Newark. She was a call girl in Elizabeth, a dancer in a nightclub upstate. Or she'd fallen in with a vampire cult or she'd checked herself into rehab, or she enrolled in the witness protection plan, or she died of a drug overdose. As time has passed, more and more of her friends, family, and co-workers have come to believe Susan Walsh is dead. Okay. Okay. okay which, 
which house? Is the it's one with the rolling one. Christmas it's lights? This, no, I think it's this one. Wait, let me just make it sure. So January. We look up a guy who says he thinks he knows what happened. He worked with Susan in the business. The guy says he'll talk on a couple of conditions. If we don't use his name, if we distort his voice, and if he talks just to Jill, not to me. She worked Gogo. He feels she understands the life. Plus, he clearly prefers the idea of a woman visiting him. I wait in the car. Okay. I'm a little nervous. Some dogs barking. Oh, boy. <clears throat> Man, it is cold out. The star police command is waiting for my official report. Why you didn't wear your leather pants today? Now, if you get a drink like alcohol, wine, gin and tonic, anything like that. Here's what Jill reports from the interview. He lives with his invalid mother. Copies of Mentertainment, the guide to Jersey Gogo, are scattered on the table. Nailed into the wall, there's a whip broken in half. In his spare time, the guy makes knives. He keeps a photo album, Polaroids, of his go-go girls to help him book clubs. He has 80 dancers working all over Jersey. He drives them to and from their gigs. You're your own boss. It's your car. You can tell them to drink, smoke, or not. You know, I constantly have a girl say, well, can I smoke in here? And they're like, yeah, no problem. But I, I got a little bit of the power there. I can tell them no. Suffer. Let's see you go through a nicotine fit for the next half hour. <laughs> I'm sadistic. Guess so. Uh, <laughs> During the interview, the guy won't look Jill in the eyes. He turns on the TV, puts it on mute, stares at it. He puffs on his pipe, lighting it over and over. Let me ask you some more stuff about Susan. Then. What kind of person was she? She is your typical average dancer. If there was rap music on, she could dance to that. If it was rock and roll, she could dance to that. It didn't matter. She was good about the whole thing. For somebody who was 36 and danced, uh, I'd say she was in pretty good shape. She wasn't like um, untoned or anything like that. She was pretty tight. The only thing she didn't have was a tan. And what do you think happened to her? I think she found some sort of uh, fatal attraction who made her just that. And she got into somebody's car that she knew and drove away with him and never came back. What makes you think that? That it was a fatal attraction thing? Had you heard about this happening? Yeah, she had spoke to me within the prior two weeks to this and uh, said how um, somebody was constantly beeping her and Susan can just be so friendly so nice and naive maybe she she didn't realize what kind of person this actually is it's not clear how much this go-go driver really knows but Susan did tell people she had a stalker she told me the week before she disappeared she told Melissa she told the therapist and during a shoot for a documentary Jill's producing, she told a group of other dancers two days before she disappeared. That's my beeper. Oh. It's probably a stalker right now. I, I, do, I do have a stalker. You have a stalker? Yeah, I, I have do. A stalker. I have a stalker. I, I usually have stalkers. <laughs> it could have been Susan's paranoia talking. Most of the people who knew her well believe she died of a drug overdose, 
and whoever was with her panicked and disposed of the body. And the Nutley, New Jersey police say they checked out the stalker theory. They say they twice hauled in a guy and determined he had nothing to do with Susan's disappearance. But the cops themselves were slow in getting started. A week or so after Susan vanished, I called them to see what they knew. A detective told me, well, she's, you know, a dancer. She's probably out, you know, partying. Eventually, several of us pointed out Susan was also a journalist on assignment. Within days, they'd begun a major investigation. Yeah, we wanted to see Detective Ryan. I'm Sandy Tolan. He's expecting us. Jill and I finally got to talk to the cops in December. But before we could ask them any questions, they made a big point of showing us how much work they'd done. Hundreds of hours, three loose-leaf binders filled up with information on the case. We sat down at a small round table with Detectives Johnson and Ferraro. On the walls, framed posters from cop movies, Out for Justice, One Good Cop. Detective Ferraro delivers the official line, Nutley police believe Susan Walsh is still alive. It's just that she's chosen not to uh, come home at this time. We don't have any other uh, reasons to feel that through all the interviews that we've taken and statements that we've taken and people that we've talked to, don't really have any concrete evidence to show that, you know, something has happened to her. Nutley police say they've checked out many reports of people who claim they saw Susan, streetwalking in Newark, dancing go-go in North Jersey or New York, but nothing checked out. Every lead dead-ended. There was just nothing else to go on. And so the investigation petered out. Then in February, hopes rose again as Susan made prime time. Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries. Susan Walsh was a woman who lived on the edge, a stripper-turned-journalist whose chosen assignments plunged her into a hazardous stew of Russian mobsters and self-proclaimed vampires. In the end, however, Susan Walsh's walk on the wild side may have led to her death. It was another false hope, producing few new leads. Months before Jim Ridgway and I had watched them film part of the docudrama, it was in Tower Books where Jim and Susan had done a book signing for Red Light. Now the Unsolved Mysteries crew was shooting a reenactment. Up on the mezzanine, there's wine, cheese, cameras, Klieg lights, and actors playing the parts of Jim and Susan. Suddenly, the director spots the real Jim. Hey, got an imposter here. Get him out of here. <laughs> what are you doing? You're communist. Get over here. Go over that corner. Uh, serious. Come here. I can't have you in the shot. Come here. We stand in the corner, looking out at actors who look disturbingly like the real Jim Ridgway, tall, graying, paternal, and the real Susan Walsh. Slight, blonde, vibrant. This is picture. Everyone, this is picture. Stand by. Roll sound. We're rolling. And action. The fake Susan makes small talk, signing copies of Red Light while the fake Jim stands by. I point to the fake Jim's larger belly and make a face. Ridgeway obliges with a sour grin, but he's looking past me, gazing at the image of a woman he worked with for three years, alive again for a moment. And cut. That's a cut. Back to one, everyone, please. Back to one. I've stayed in it so long that my health is so bad. I have emphysema, bronchitis, and an ulcer. Jeez. Yeah, and I was in the hospital twice in the last two weeks. This is the real Susan in the documentary shoot with Jill and the other dancers. It was two days before she disappeared, 
and it was like Susan was watching herself go down. I just went through the just, same thing. I'm just trying to hang on to my uh, reason to and my reason for being at this point. I'm just trying to hang on. But I, I stayed in so long that it got me, because you can crawl on stage half dead, but I stayed in it so long. If you stay in it so long, it, it will break down your health to the point where you just can't go out and get the job. Now, if I had a month to rest, get my health back, but I can't because I'm the only one supporting my son, so I can't stop. And yet, staying in it is killing me, so I'm sort of scared right now. It's A Sunday morning, and I'm going back home to Boston. I drop over to say goodbye to Jill. Susan is an extension of all the dancers, all of us. And so what happened to her is that typical dancer trap of going all the way down this downward spiral and choosing the darkest path. And she chose the darkest path that we all see. We can see that path, and yet she took it. And it's possible that I could have taken it or that any one of these other girls could have taken it. And that's really terrifying. Um, and especially that she's this really smart, warm, loving mother, um, funny, and even her, even she went down that path. I mean, she was um, an incredible human being. Coming up, another woman and a porn customer who changes in a minute when our program continues. American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, invite a variety of writers, documentary producers, and performers to take a whack at that theme. Today's program, Three Women and the Sex Industry. We are at Act Two of our program, Striptease. It's easy to imagine the guy in this next story as one of the customers in a go-go bar in northern Jersey. He's an extreme case, though, and he changes. Lauren Slater is a psychologist and writer in Boston. This is an account of one of her cases. Again, a warning to listeners, some of this story may not be appropriate for younger children. George came to our clinic in early autumn and was diagnosed by the intake worker with an antisocial personality disorder, a sociopath, a deviant, whom I, a newcomer to the field of psychology, was now assigned to work with in therapy for an undefined period of time. He looked almost ridiculously tough, 
sitting in a sleeveless leather vest in the clinic's lobby, hair scrunched back in a ponytail, a cigarette dangling from his mouth, tattoos coiled over his arms. Immediately, I felt awkward in his presence. The day I met George, I was wearing my working garb, a sundress, a pair of falling-apart flats, legs stubbly from hair I'd only half-shaved, and perhaps a swatch of slip showing beneath my hem. I felt stout and dumpy. As a therapist, I think I should be beyond these silly social embarrassments. I think I should at least be beyond my own bodily insecurities enough to throw my full attention into the client's waiting lap. But I'm not. Around George, I'm not. And the sense of shame he evokes in me to this day is part of our treatment story together. My office at the time was windowless, and so small we had to sit with our knees near brushing. I got ready to ask my usual orienting questions. Age? I asked. Instead of answering me, George gave a dramatic sigh. I have been waiting for this day, he said. I've seen six of you guys, and so far no one's worked out. I need a doc who can really push me. I need to be challenged. Challenged? I asked. Like how? I've got my problems, George said, and I can admit to them. The other six I went to just sat there and stared at me. I want someone who will give me feedback, make me see things in a new way. So what are these problems? George sat back, ran one hand over a large tattoo on his bicep. Masturbation, he said gravely. I can't stop. Can't. Seven, eight, nine times a day. I have a strong drive. Now he pulled a list out of his pocket and began to read. Masturbation, pornography, aggression, defensiveness, pride, control. These are my problems. Take porn. I love it, but the truth is I'd rather do it with a videotape than with my girlfriend, Joanne. We have huge beefs. Huge, George said. My anger is just... He paused. Like, I think I could kill her. I've killed a few people before, so I wouldn't put it past me. George was staring straight at me when he said this, testing me for my reaction. So why do you think you prefer porn to people, I said, keeping my voice even, despite the fact that I suddenly felt like fleeing. Don't get me wrong, George said. I like Joanne. She's a real smoker. But I'll be honest, a picture's just a lot easier. Just a completely quiet and beautiful bod. I thought of my own bod then, and felt my breasts beneath my dress burn with shame. George is 35 years old and has lived seven of those years on the street, drugging, knife-fighting, and stealing. He has been clean now for half a decade, a really remarkable achievement which he attributes to his spirituality, a weird blend of mysticism and heavy metal. In his apartment where he lived with Joanne, he has two special cupboards side by side. In one of them, he keeps his incense and tarot cards. In the other, he stores his collection of sadomasochistic videos and magazines. Oddly, this second cupboard is lined with floral contact paper left by a previous tenant. They bring him satisfaction, these videos. A lot goes on for him each day. 
Joanne is, as he said, a beautiful woman, but she is also unpredictable and self-absorbed, a series of seismic cycles he cannot control. He tells me he is from the old school, expects his woman to cook and clean, to have fish on the table by six, dustless halls, and sex where her moans are synchronized to his. When Joanne lets him down, he gets mad, really red-faced furious, so that he hauls her up against a wall, wallops her across the face. He feels so much sheer and irrational hate that he has to retreat to his room to watch his videos. They soothe him, images of female flesh controlled. In our first several sessions, I tried to find the origins of his hate. For instance, George's father beat him, but the beatings were not as bad as the humiliation that went along with them. He remembers the strap, the hands that were like hatchets. But the intensity of his tale lies for me in this image, a small boy pressed against a refrigerator, white as a nuptial bedsheet, the man pressing against him, shouting at him. George could feel his father's groin, hot and hard, right in the nook between his thighs. He started to think of himself as having a nook there, a gross, gaping place. He imagined his body was a girl's. George was disgusted, horrified. Soon afterward, he learned to fight, started to lift weights, running from the softness that is the requisite of all rapes. I had at first a hard time dealing with George because he offended me. I understood his pornography obsession as a deflection of his own anxieties. So he wouldn't have to feel his fear, his memories of helplessness. He tried to control women. Now understand, I am a woman who has spent much time aiming to please men. I am a woman who, in her adolescent days, denied herself food or threw it all up so I could fit into the airless image this man in my office was both struggling to possess and shed at the same time. I remember the smell of myself as an anorexic, a frail dry odor like scorched grass, my limbs coated with hair. Because of these memories, it was impossible for me to like George, but I did feel deeply for him. After all, hadn't I once striven for his same goals, to eradicate the weak part of the self who hurts and bleeds and feeds? During the first few weeks of our therapy together, I began to feel the old shame about my body returning more strongly than it had in a while. Although George said he wanted help to overcome his pornography obsession, he was sometimes driven to watch five, six films a night, and to learn to diffuse his rages, he used his sessions to vent about Joanne's latest transgressions, and from there he would segue into diatribes about the perfect female sex organs, their size and smell. After a day during which I'd seen George had ended, I would go home and feel my flesh more heavily than ever. I often felt like weeping, and it was during this time that I noticed small black hairs growing up around my nipples. On the one hand, I wanted to pluck them out. On the other hand, I wanted them to grow, lush like the marsh weed that springs up in swamps. My prescription was for George to learn somehow that being soft does not mean being molested or murdered, necessarily. He would have none of it, of course. 
We had been going at it for about two months, and he told me a story that bowled me over. The woods of his childhood home divided his family's house from Teddy Swayze's, a classmate who lived through several stands of pines. George was nine years old, and that day Teddy had promised him the use of his new red Tonka toy truck if only George would come over and play. But when he got there, Teddy went back on his part of the bargain. The truck, nope, was not to be shared. George had walked all this way, had stumbled over tree roots, had opened himself to hope, only to find he was fooled. So he went home, took his father's knife, some rope from the cellar, and made a gallows in the woods using branches as a platform. Boy, have I got the coolest thing to show you, George said to Teddy. You gotta come. And then when they were there, George said, look up. It was floating against the sky, the noose, very bright in the sunlight. Climb, George said, using the knife to persuade. He used the blade on the kid's soft skin and had a sudden jarring image of his mother in the kitchen in the morning wearing an apron and slicing through a warm bar of butter. Teddy was up there. George positioned his head in place, kicked away the sticks, so all of a sudden Teddy swung, neck bunched in the noose. I was leaning forward in my seat, the rope broke, he said. I knew it would. I just wanted to scare him because I wouldn't be had. I can't be had. You see what I mean? I didn't say anything. Otherwise, I feel like I'm just a doormat. He took an angry drag off his cigarette. But do you think everyone in the whole world wants to treat you as a doormat, abuse you in some way? Absolutely, George said. I know it must be tiring having to think that. You can never really let down your guard. Have you ever cried in front of someone to show that you're scared, upset? George didn't say anything. A long silence settled between us. We were a cut cord, a swarm of static. What's going on, George? Why is it unsafe to feel anything but defensiveness or violence in this office? Do you think I'm going to take advantage of you? Immediately I realized I'd made a blunder by allowing him the opportunity to sexualize our interaction. You take advantage of me? Isn't that supposed to be the other way around? He leaned back in his chair, lit another cigarette. I saw the smoke slide from his mouth, felt it wrap around me in a blue and gauzy cloud, decking me in the moving material of a see-through dress. George believed that the bodies outside him were missiles poised and poisonous. His aggressive, slit-eyed stance is a typically male phenomenon. My eating disorder, the obsessive desire to be thin, 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 and perfectly poisonously poised, is typically a female phenomenon. George and I were both victims of our culture's fear of the feminine. Unable to lay down our system of weapons and spread our legs open to life, because we learned that in this posture we will be shamed, not invigorated. We did not know how to trust what we could not dominate. And the recovering anorexic is not only in a particularly good position to articulate these truths, she is also, ironically, in a particularly good position vis-a-vis -vis therapy to treat the misogynist male. 
She understands perhaps better than anyone the urge to whip and dominate, discipline and even delete the female form. For years I was hungry but could not risk the softness of surrender. I dreamt of letting down my guard, sitting at a table on which silver dishes steamed and ingesting colors, orange carrots, the soft wombs of tomatoes, the tangy dirt of chocolate cake. But I couldn't dare, couldn't trust enough to let myself go. These are the memories that came to mind when I looked at George, rigid in his chair, his face set against the seepage of any emotion that wasn't cruel or lewd. He told me about forcing himself to rise before dawn each morning, working out two hours a day, jogging barefoot in the snow. I nodded yes, having done the same to myself. The more deeply I went into it with him, the more difficult he became. Our therapy started to evolve so that I played a mostly silent role, while he went on and on, endlessly it seemed, about Joanne's anatomy, the six-hour plow, her tight little sex. What about me? I wanted to say to him. Does it occur to you that I am a woman here? That you just might be offending me? And beneath that, another, smaller voice was crying, What about me? Am I not also attractive? Do I not measure up to your standards? Why not? I began to realize our sessions were a lot like porn, in which I, the silent subject, absorbed his fantasies and in my featurelessness reflected them back to him. George let me know clearly what my role in our relationship was by shifting impatiently whenever I spoke, by the quick brushing motions he made with his hands as though to sweep away my words, by interrupting me and then exploding in a tyrannical temper if I asserted my right to finish my own sentence. Quiet, he once roared at me, and I, like a little girl, sank back down in my seat and felt darkness grow up around me. I wonder if you ever think, I finally burst out to him one day, that I might be uncomfortable with your sexual talk, with the kinds of expressions you use. But you're a shrink, George said to me. That's what you're here for. That's your whole job. I wanted to reach out and slap him. Not even in my office am I just a shrink. I am also a woman, and the way you talk about my gender disgusts me. I would never talk to a woman I was trying to make it with like that. But you're not supposed to... Supposed to what? George looked uncomfortable. Hallelujah, I thought. Supposed to mind, he said. Surprise, I said. I mind. George looked up at me, his expression confused. My face felt all red. For one moment, then, our masks dropped away. I could tell by the way George was looking at me that he was, for maybe the first time, considering me not as a function, but as a feeling. I smiled at him. He nodded. Hello. Hello. 
Shortly after this encounter, George left the state for six weeks to do a series of carpentry jobs in Arizona. He returned to therapy in late May. He slumped down in his seat, looked at his lap. I was going to call you, he said in a low voice. I had never heard him use that voice before. What happened, I asked. She left me, George said. He shook his head, just like that. I called her at her parents, and she says it's completely finished, gonzo. But I'm chasing her. I'm running after her like a goddamn desperate dog, phoning her ten, twenty times a day, bawling in her ear. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what you do, I said. Tell me more about that. I've been trying every ploy with this bitch for the past week, and I'm... What? You're what? Helpless. His mouth was a bitter line of tension, but his eyes were wet. I think that's what upsets you the most about Joanne's leaving, that you have no control, that you feel helpless to get her back. George, to my surprise, nodded in agreement. His own pain had made him flexible, open to vision and suggestion. For the first time in six months of treatment, I think we really talked. The next few weeks brought some changes in George. He found himself facing an emotion he could not defend himself against. No amount of swearing or swaggering could express mourning. The pain of Joanne's leaving so suddenly broke his shield with an intensity neither of us had anticipated. I was drawn into George now, and I told him so. In some moments I think I saw his real face, the flow of emotion across it like wind working on sand. And I grew to love him, and love the strength in his slow surrender. It is August. I am 23 years old. I have never met George. I am just out of college. I weigh 88 pounds. When I look out my bedroom window, I can see tulips. They are the most trusting beings, they with their throats always open, their long gold tongues hanging out. Nothing bad happens to them. The sun doesn't rape them. They don't gag on the rain. This day is really many months. I watch the world. I watch the natural cycle of things. Cliché as it may be, this is what cures me. There comes a moment when recovery is religious, when a person says, all right, I will have faith. I will lay down my sword and shield and see what the world works in me. I look away from my bedroom window and go downstairs, out onto the porch. Someone has set a table for me. Sliced strawberries lie like the tongues of maidens on a platter, wedges of cheese and bread. I put food in my mouth. For the first time in years, I swallow the softness of ice cream. I want to see if my body will blow up in disgusting fatness with this slow animal stupidity swelling in my stomach. It doesn't. Letting down my guard, opening my many mouths, does not bring about the ruin, the rape I had feared. On the contrary, 
Food brings vitality back to me. I feel my hair take on its sheen, grow longer, as though new stalks of thought are springing from my brain. My brain, now nourished, thinks in colors instead of calories. I can run harder. My eyes are moist enough to cry. George started to taste. Styles, voices, times. He reported allowing himself to sleep late one morning. He started going out some nights without his leather vest or black boots, tried kissing a woman on the neck and going no farther. He brought wood home with him at the end of working days, stayed up late making small objects without any obvious functions, a box, a mobile, a chiseled plaque. One day he came to session and told me he had met a woman, Blucky, whom he thought he could fall in love with if only he could get over Joanne. The other problem is, George said, she's the greatest person, but she's heavy, maybe 30 pounds overweight. I've never made it with a fat woman before. You know me, I'm used to perfect curves, thighs I can grab a hold of, someone I can flip like a doll. He gave me one of his lewd George smiles. I was enchanted by the idea of George with a fat woman. I had seen enough of George changed, naked, to imagine how his body would be within a fat woman's arms. I imagined her rocking him and him kissing her face and mouth. I could not help but see her spread legs on a bed, and he, a little cowed by the sight of so much, trying to touch her, allowing himself entry into the many layers of her life. He brushes her, goes up past her hip, until he touches the curved rib bone, the hard male bone, taken a long time ago from the man, buried and found only in the full woman's body. Lawrence Slater's story, Strip Tease, was first published in the Quarterly New Letters. It was read by actress Joy Gregory. Our program was produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself, with Peter Clowney and Nancy Updike, contributing editors Sarah Val, Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, and Margie Rockland. Special thanks today to Jill Morley, to Elizabeth Gammons, to Dorian Devins and WFMU Radio for help with Sandy Tolan's story, which was mixed at Homelands Productions. Some original scoring today by Anthony Barillo, Jeff Mueller, and Jason Noble. If you would like a copy of this or any of our programs, they only cost $10. Call us at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. That's 312-832-3380. Our email address, radio at well.com. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. <laughs>